0: Bibles to Galatians chapter 2 and if you'll find that rather quickly I want to do our reading first and then we're going to get right into the heart of the message this evening and um, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago and it's been two weeks now since we've looked at this scripture so I I wasn't going to read all ten verses again but I think we'll do that since it's been uh, this long since we talked about this but I mentioned that there should not be a break between Uh, chapter 1, verse number 24, and chapter 2, verse number 1. And that's because we have one continuous thought here. All of it has to do with Paul's defense of apostleship. So if you look in chapter 2, verse number 1, he says, Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles... But privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who is with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us again into bondage. To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour." that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of these who seemed to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat, in conference, added nothing to me. But contrary when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter... For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do." Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we read that. How many of you now, after two weeks have gone by, you perfectly understand exactly everything that I read? Oh, Brother Randy, I'm glad uh, you, you may come and assist me this evening then because uh, this is uh, a quite difficult portion of Scripture, and there's a lot, uh, as I mentioned the last time, a lot of parenthetical praises. There's a changes in in thought here as it goes along. Uh, some of it's, well, most of it, really, is not real clear, and so it's going to take us a little while to get through it. And as we do, I do want to take us into Acts chapter 15 at a later in some later lessons, and we're going to spend a little bit of time there in Acts 15 talking about this council at Jerusalem, which is really what Paul went to Jerusalem for uh, in this second chapter. So we return here this evening to some familiar territory because we've been discussing for several weeks about Paul's defense of his apostleship. And there probably is no person that's been as maligned as the apostle Paul. Uh, probably the only one that I can think of would be Judas Iscariot who, who betrayed Jesus. And you may think, well, that, that's a strange statement to make. We, we, we really think Paul is a great guy. We love the Apostle Paul. But really, Paul is very much aligned because anyone who denies the gospel that Paul taught, and there are many people that do, make an assault and a betrayal of Jesus Christ and also of the Apostle Paul. And we've been taught, of course, that we're, we're saved by grace through faith alone, and there's absolutely nothing we can do to, for, to work for our salvation. And it's hard for us to imagine, then, that anybody just wouldn't love Paul because that is so clear in his teachings, and he talks about that so often. And, and we would think that we really wish that we could just have a modicum of the zeal and dedication that the apostle Paul had for the cause of Christ. I know many preachers are captivated by Paul. And they just love to come to the portions of Scripture that Paul wrote so they can study those out, and, and uh, Paul is just a, a great mind. I think it was John MacArthur who said he had spent so much time in the, uh, studying the New Testament that the characters of the New Testament had become his best friends. And he said the best of all of them is the Apostle Paul. So it's hard to us to understand why other people don't see Paul Paul the way that we do. But the truth is, if if you're someone who desires a Bible and a religion that teaches the innate goodness of man, then you would be a bitter enemy of the apostle Paul. To those that love sin and are not willing to forsake everything for Christ, Paul would be the enemy of that kind of a person. For those who think that truth is relative and they just love to live in the shady gray areas all the time. The Apostle Paul is so clear with his doctrine. He's so black and white in what he has to say that those people are not going to like the Apostle Paul. So from the very beginning... From the beginning of his ministry, Paul was, was hated. He was uncompromising, especially on this doctrine that, that we're centering in here, which is justification by faith alone. And so that makes the apostle Paul, in essence, the enemy of every religious system where people seek to be justified by human goodness. And so that makes him the enemy of every sacramental system, and that would include Roman Catholicism. And here in our study, it makes him the enemy of Judaizers who had their own pet sacrament, you might say, and that was circumcision. So this is the problem in the first two chapters. Paul is in this struggle with those who denied his apostleship on the grounds that he was teaching something different than what Jesus taught and what the apostles in Jerusalem were teaching. Now, I also want to point out once again that in the first chapter, Paul proved that the gospel that he was preaching was received directly from Christ and that he conferred with no one about it. No one taught him his doctrine. And in verse number 16, he says that when God chose to reveal Christ to him and told him that he would be an apostle, a witness to the Gentiles, he said, immediately, I conferred not with flesh and blood. And that was a very important argument to him because it showed that without human contact, without really hearing the things that the apostles had to say about justification and the other doctrines of the Christian faith, that there's no way that Paul would know the things that he knew, that he would understand the the things of God the way that he did, unless God had revealed them to him directly. So we talked about this whole issue as being the core issue and that is Paul's apostleship and and the the uh, continuing struggle that he has about the authority over teaching this particular gospel that there's only one way that people can be justified with God and that is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And the issue around that is also the authority. If the Judaizers could prove that Paul had no authority, that his gospel was not the same as that taught by the apostles and by Jesus, then you can throw it all out. Get rid of it all, and the Judaizers are right. And then on the other hand, if the apostle Paul can prove that his doctrines are the same as the apostles in Jerusalem, then the authority is established. Now, I'd like to add again this important note because it's been a couple of weeks since we talked about it, that authority authority is no less an issue today than it was in the time of the Apostle Paul. We still have to do deal with the issue of authority and our authority today is what? The Scriptures. There, Brother Delaney is holding up his Bible. Our authority today is the Scripture and anybody that, that says that they have some other revelation anybody that has a different doctrine that's taught in the Scriptures, anybody that has a personal opinion that they think is better than what the Scriptures say, those kinds of people are under the curse of God. That's what Paul talks about in the first chapter there. There's a curse placed upon people. He says anathema to these people who teach anything other than what we have in the Word of God. So a church without a Bible... And a church without a preacher that preaches straight from Scripture and the Scriptures alone is really no church, is really no friend of God, and is really no friend of Jesus Christ. So the authority is the core issue, and, and Paul proved his authority was direct by direct revelation from God. So the next step that he has here is to prove that his teachings are the same as the apostles in Jerusalem. And that's not a step that Paul thought he necessarily ought to take, or have to take, I mean, because he didn't seek authority from the apostles, and he got it directly from God, so the authority is established. So he doesn't necessarily want to go to Jerusalem to try to prove this, but the Judaizers keep claiming that the apostles were teaching something different. And so he's going to have to stop that, that talk, and he can't leave that element of doubt in people's minds that what he taught was different, and that people weren't really receiving the true gospel of Christ. And so that's why we have the second chapter, why it begins this way, that Paul makes a trip to Jerusalem to see the apostles and to establish this important truth of doctrine. So when did Paul make the trip? Well, that's what we talked about in the last lesson, and that was the comparison of the timeline. And according to Paul, it was 14 years after the first trip that he made to Jerusalem, which he mentions in chapter 1, verse number 18. Now, as I understand, after the last message that I preached on this, there were a lot of you, or some—well, maybe not a lot, but some of you were confused as to what really I was talking about and what I was trying to, trying to, uh, to bring out in that message. So as I told, uh, told our Sunday morning forum class, I think a week or so ago, that I went back and I listened to the message. And I understood it perfectly, so I don't know what the problem is. So um, so I really don't know what the, I, I know what the issues are, are of course. And, and it, maybe it was a little bit hard to understand. But what I was trying to show you that when Paul says that he went to Jerusalem 14 years after Acts, or after... Um, uh, chapter 1 verse number 18 that he did not mean that that was the first trip that he had made to Jerusalem and that was a very important point because if it was the first trip since he had made uh, that trip in in, uh, chapter 1 verse number 18 then something is thrown off in the timelines here and we're not going to be able to trust Paul and what he says about his conversion. So we went back to the book of Acts, and we looked and tried to find, well, where does this match up with the, book, with the book of Acts? And our discussion centered on chapter 11, first of all, because Paul made a trip to Jerusalem in chapter 11. But if that's the one that's in Acts chapter 11, if that's the trip that this is talking about here, then it throws everything off as far as, as Paul's conversion. It would have meant that he had been converted sometime during the ministry of Christ and before the crucifixion. And we know that's the case because what happens in Acts chapter 11 is dated. There was a famine there, and that's a matter of history, a famine in Jerusalem at that time. So that's a matter of history. We know when that happened. So that throws Acts 11 out. But there are many people who still believe that Acts 11 is is, is the time. And I just wanted to point point out to you that we need to get the timeline right so we can prove that the Bible matches. There's nothing nothing that's out of order in the Scripture. So we looked at this, and we found out that Acts chapter 15 is the same as Galatians chapter 2. And that's when Paul and Barnabas went down to see the apostles in Jerusalem to discuss this issue with the Judaizers, and they were saying that circumcision was necessary for salvation. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, we're going to look at that council in Jerusalem at a later, little bit later time, but it's very clear that what Paul is talking about here is the same thing that's talked about in Acts chapter 15. And then I also want to point out that, that Paul's trip to Jerusalem was necessary because this argument that he was depending upon and relying so much on his which was his independence from all the other apostles, that he received his gospel directly from Christ, that argument starting to work against him because what the Judaizers were doing was pitting the apostle Paul against the, the apostles in Jerusalem and saying that there was a division in the main leaders of the, of the Christian faith. Now, is everybody up to date on, on, on these things? And, and, and especially what we mean, I don't want to use terms you don't understand. Everybody knows what the Judaizers are. They're the people that, the Jews that came from Jerusalem, and they went to Galatia and claimed that it was necessary for the Gentiles to be circumcised in order to be saved. So that's the whole fight here. Is justification by faith alone, or is there something else that has to be added to faith? Now, thirdly, and this is where we'll spend our time tonight, and that is the companions for the journey. Verse 1 says, Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. So Paul mentions here two traveling companions that went with him. But if you go back to Acts chapter 15, you'll find that there were actually more than two people that went with him. And the reason that Paul mentions Barnabas and Titus specifically here because they're the ones that are most important uh, to his defense. Now, before we talk about them, though, I want to talk to you about Paul. And Paul is one that I would call the defender. He's the defender of the faith, and it's his authority that's really at the center of the controversy. Well, let's suppose for just a minute that Paul had not been at the center of the controversy. What if this is someone else? What if this is one one of the other people that had left Jerusalem and during the persecution and scattered out to the different areas? Maybe it's one of the, if it had been one of the people that um, had followed the command of the Lord when he said, you're going to be witnesses to me to Judea, in Judea, Samaria, and uh, to other places and all the other most parts of the world. What if this was somebody else besides the Apostle Paul? Well, even if it was, Paul would have still been the best one to go to Jerusalem to defend the faith in this particular area. And we should know that because we've studied two of Paul's letters extensively, the book of Ephesians and Philippians, and looked at that in great detail. We also regularly refer, refer to Paul's magnum opus, which is the book of Romans. And each time that we look into those scriptures, we're just simply, at least I am, lost in amazement at the... Well, just the logic of Paul's argument and and, and the ability to clearly define issues to produce those logical arguments on the fundamentals of the faith. And so if you need a defender of doctrine, the apostle Paul is the one you want to call on because there is nobody that's a better defender. He's been called steadfast, determined, zealous, resolute, expertly tactful, and an intellectual giant. And those are just a few of the superlatives that are used to describe Paul. as the greatest advocate for the cause of Christ. But rather than spend time with Paul, what I really want to do is look at these two companions that are mentioned here. Uh, we, we'll, we'll try to give Paul his just due as we go through the study. So let's take just a minute to look at these other two that accompanied Paul to Jerusalem. Now, the first one is Barnabas, and Barnabas is what we would call the encourager. We have a description of him in Acts chapter 11. So if you'll turn there, Acts chapter 11, and, and if you'll keep Acts open for a while, uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time here reading some scripture. But here in Acts chapter 11, this is after uh, Peter had preached to the Gentile centurion Cornelius, and Cornelius had been saved, the Holy Spirit had fallen on his household, and in verse number 18, we have that great verse that says, "...then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life." And if you look at verse number 19, Barnabas is in this scripture, in, in this passage. Verse 19 says, "...now when they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only." And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. When tidings of these things came into the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, uh, then tidings, rather, these things came into the ears of the church was at, which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch who when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people... And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Now, reading that description of Barnabas, we just have to think, wouldn't, wouldn't you love to have that as your legacy would said about Barnabas? He was an encourager. It says here, he exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they might cleave unto the Lord. That's what we need in church. We need people that are known as encouragers. It's great to have Christians in the church that are encouraging to others in their faith. I remember when I first came to California, that I was living in Napa, and uh, the church that I planned to attend was there in Napa, and, and I had originally planned when I came, came to California that I was going to take a job in ministry in that church. And probably you've never realized this by listening to you to me, rather that I am very highly opinionated and uh, very headstrong on some things. And so I I saw very quickly that the pastor of that church and I were not going to get along. And so we never worked things out, got the details worked out, and that never materialized to take a job in that church. And so I started looking for another church, and I wasn't exactly sure what the Lord would have me to do. And so one of the places that I went was to Fairfield, and I started uh, attending a Baptist church over there and um, it was a, the pastor of the church was what i would call a good old boy from arkansas he was really a good preacher but i think he was you know he was on towards he had health problems so he was on towards the end of his ministry but he was a really good preacher the only problem was the church was just terribly unfriendly i mean they they just if you were visiting the church and they you just got felt left out nobody was going to talk to you except there was one fellow that would talk to me. And this fellow stood at the door every week, and he would see me coming, and he was an usher. And as soon as I came in and started headed to where I usually sat in the same area, just like you do. And so I usually sat in that same area. And this fellow would head over toward me each week, and he always came to me telling me, I guess he thought it was his job to tell all the visitors that came all the dirt on the church. And so he knew things about everybody. And he didn't hesitate to come and tell me about this person and that person and tell me what was going on. And instead of being an encourager, it was really kind of creepy in a way to hear those kinds of things. And so uh, I didn't really let that bother me a whole lot because I've been in church all my life, a long, long time. And trust me, folks, I've seen them all. I've seen all kinds. And so I didn't really let him bother me too much. He, He wasn't somebody that's going to keep me from going to church. But I felt like Maybe what I ought to do is go and talk to the pastor and tell him what that guy's doing because he's really harming the ministry here. But then I thought about that and said, no, I'm not a member of the church. It's not my job to go and talk to the pastor about that. And having been in church for a long, long time, I also know this, that people like that already have their reputation. People already know who they are and what they are and they just kind of let them go on. So they probably knew all about it. But it's sad when you have people in church that are constant complainers instead of consistent encouragers. What we need are encouragers. Now, I would I would love it to have a description like Barnabas has here. In verse 24, it says, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. And it all, the Scripture also shows us what kind of effect that had on people. It says, And much people were added unto the Lord. Do you realize how important it is that that you encourage people and be, uh, just be the kind of person that, that talks well of your church and talks well uh, uh, when, you, when they're in the church and there's not a lot of things that are going on that you want to talk about. That's very important because people can be led to the Lord or steered away from the Lord depending upon the way that you act when they come into the church. So you need to be careful about that. And so Barnabas was that encourager. He sounds like the kind of guy that you want to travel with. He He was a perfect traveling companion for Paul because here is a man that knew his way around the scriptures and also he was a great testimony and a witness for all of these Gentiles that had come to the faith through the preaching of the apostle Paul. Then another great trait about Barnabas was his generosity. Now if you look at chapter 4, we'll see Barnabas here again and uh, I hope that you uh, are, are somewhat aware of what's going on in in chapter 4 and 5 because the, the the church at Jerusalem was under such stress and strain that the people became very closely knit together and what they decided to do was to sell their property and to bring the money, and they would pool all of that together for the benefit of everybody in the church. They were sharing their wealth for the good of all. And this is just prior. What we read here in chapter 4 is just prior to the incident with Ananias and Sapphira. And in verse number 33, it says, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, Barnabas is a real study in contrast to Ananias and Sapphira. He sold his land, sold what he had, and brought all that money and brought it uh, and gave it to the apostles. He wasn't trying to hold on to his wealth. And so after he became a Christian, the most important part of his life was actually being a Christian. I mean, his purpose was the gospel of Christ and was also the people of the Lord. So he had no trouble giving up everything that he had for the cause of Christ. Now, verse 36 says his name was Joseph, and he was a Levite from Cyprus. But the apostles changed his name, or they probably gave him this nickname. They called him Barnabas. Whenever you see Bar in front of somebody's name in Scripture, that means what? It means the son of. So in this case, it means the son of consolation, which means the same thing as the son of uh, of encouragement. And that's the kind of person that a pastor wants in a church. He he's some someone who's encouraging and someone who's very sweetly generous with their possessions. Now we have a lot, well I won't say we have a lot, but we have some church members that when you talk about giving an offering, they sully up. They don't really want to don't want to talk about giving. There there really is no sweetness in them. There's a lot of jealousy there, a lot of wanting to hold on to their possessions and not share those with anybody. And so when you ask for an offering, you're the last people to give, or if they do give, they're the most reluctant to give. And that's why when we did something like Sunday morning after the services, and we take up an offering for for the, the Cirillos to try to help them out. You know there were people that were just joyous at the opportunity to give that, that's the kind of people that you want in a church. Just love to help somebody. But there are so many people that aren't like that. Uh, not, maybe not so many in our church, but there are a lot of people that just will not give. And one of the common excuses that you hear from people, I can't afford to tithe. I don't give because I can't afford to tithe. But the same people can afford toys, things they want to do. They can afford their vacations and those things. About anything they want to do, they can do. And so whenever you hear somebody say, I can't afford to tithe, it's the same thing as saying, I can't afford to trust the Lord. It's the very same thing. So there are people like that that begrudge the pastor and and the pastor's family because they're treated well and taken care of. And so in short, they, they just don't have compassion for people. They just don't really want to give. And so you compare the giving records of people like this and and uh, rarely do you find their names on the envelopes that uh, bring, that want to help people out. Barnabas was the fellow that had his name always on the envelope. He was always giving. He was caring and compassionate. He was an encourager and very generous. But I suppose the most important trait of Barnabas, in this case, is what he thought of Paul. And you remember how we've discussed Paul's reputation and we're all familiar with that. He, Paul was a persecutor. He was just uh, uh, somebody with every ounce that was in him, every ounce of his Pharisaism. He hated the people of God. And it was Paul's persecution that drove people out of Jerusalem. And really, this is why we find Barnabas in Acts chapter 11 preaching uh, to the Hellenistic Jews there at Antioch. People had spread out because of the persecution. But Barnabas was very valuable to Paul because Paul's reputation among Christians was this. Don't get near that guy. Don't even get close to him because if you hear he's around, head in the opposite direction. And so when Paul got converted, there was nobody that believed it. They thought, well, this is a trick. And after he spent that time in Damascus and then then into Arabia, then back to Damascus, Paul went to Jerusalem. And if you'll take a look at chapter 9... When Paul arrived in Jerusalem, this is the reaction to him. This is in chapter 9, verse number 26. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself, or he tried to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. And that's the typical expected reaction. They were afraid because they knew Paul's reputation. You know, what what if Osama bin Laden came into these services tonight, what would you say? The well, first thing you'd say, how'd that guy get out of hell? That'd be the first thing you'd say. But but assuming that he hadn't been a victim of the Navy SEALs, and he showed up in church tonight, and he came and he said, you know, I really want to be a Christian. I mean, I just love Christians, and I just love Americans, and I want to be an American Christian. What would you do? I'd duck behind the pulpit, and I'd hope he ran out of bullets using one on you before he got to me. and And... We would be afraid of that. We wouldn't trust that. Well, this is like it was with the Apostle Paul, or Saul, who he's known then. They, they were thinking, Barnabas, don't bring that guy here. Don't show him where we live. Don't show him where we worship. Are you crazy or something? But verse 27 shows us who... Calm that situation. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas was the friend that vouched for Paul. He risked people thinking that he had sold them out, that he was some kind of a traitor by bringing Paul there. Here, here's the guy that's the most despised Pharisee, the most the most feared person. In, in, in Israel, as far as Christians were concerned, and Barnabas is the one who just got the door open so that Paul could come in and be a part of the disciples at Jerusalem. So if you're Paul, who do you want to take with you? Who do you want to go on the journey? Who's your, who's your best companion? Well, I think at this point, Barnabas was probably Paul's best friend. They, they were co-laborers in the Lord. Uh, they were chosen in Acts chapter 11 to take that offering to Jerusalem, so they went together to do that. When the church in Antioch sent the first, sent the first missionaries out, who did they send? They ordained Paul and Barnabas, and they went together. And that really brings up another great characteristic of, of, of Barnabas, and that's his humility. He was a man of humility. You see, Barnabas was the first in conversion. He'd been a Christian longer than, than Paul had been a Christian. He'd already been preaching in Antioch. And when there were so many people being one to the Lord and there was such a ministry that was growing there that Barnabas needed help, and so he went and sought out Paul. And he went and found him and brought him back to help him there in Antioch. And at that point, Barnabas is the lead person. He's the head of the ministry team, you might say. But when they were called to go on the first missionary journey and and they were ordained to do that, the leadership roles get reversed. And so Barnabas is the one who steps into the background and Paul becomes the leader then. How many people are willing to do that? When do you see that happen in ministry? I mean, there are all kinds of leadership struggles that take place in the ministry. I mean, there are power grabs that are going on all the time in many churches. Somebody gets... Uh, wants to have a job in the church and somebody else gets appointed to that and that per- other person gets unhappy. Somebody's running for deacon and they don't get elected and they get upset about that. Sometimes churches have deacon boards and they insist on power and they don't want to, to yield to the to the leadership of the church. They, they, they don't want to give in to what the, the pastor thinks is best for the church and so there's this constant struggle and warfare that's going on in the church. And then sometimes the pastor wants to be the head cheese so badly that he rules and runs everything. I mean, he's the little pope in his popedom. And if the butler knows his dirty secrets, then the butler gets thrown out. Everybody get that reference? Nobody got that reference. Read the paper, folks. Oh, he got it. Got, okay. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll probably figure that out sometime. Read the paper and see what happened with uh, Pope Benedict Sixteenth and the pope's butler. Well that's the interaction that we have with Paul and Barnabas. Now, to be fair, though, there is an incident that happened between Paul and Barnabas, and it caused them to split up. And this is when Paul chose a different traveling companion. Instead, he chose Silas to go with him on the second missionary journey. Now, if you look at chapter 15, uh, this is after the Jerusalem council, and Paul and Barnabas had returned to Antioch. In chapter 15, verse number 36... And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. That means they want to go back to the churches of the first missionary journey and check out things and see what's happening. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren under the grace of God. Now, here's another thing that we can say about Barnabas. He's fiercely loyal to his family. John Mark was his nephew. Now, unfortunately, when John Mark, or when Paul and Barnabas went on that first missionary trip, That John Mark accompanied them, started out with them, but then when they got into the trip, he decided to turn back. So now it's time to go back and visit churches again, and Paul's ready to go, and Barnabas wants to take John Mark again. And Paul says, No, I, I don't want to take him. I don't want somebody that's not dependable. He turned back. And so. They got into an argument over this, and the Bible says there was such a contention between them that they just had to split up. They couldn't go together any longer. So Barnabas took John Mark. He went his way, and Paul took Silas and went another way. Now, when you read about this, and maybe sometime if you have a chance, you might look at some commentaries or whatever on that, and you'll find that most often Barnabas is considered to be at fault. I don't think the Bible clearly says that myself, but there's a problem here. But despite that problem, apparently under the tutelage of Barnabas, John Mark got straightened out and he became a very valuable asset to Paul's ministry. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, Paul is writing from prison. He says, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Then he says, Take Mark and bring him with thee. For he is profitable to me for the ministry. And then in Colossians chapter 4, Paul said that John Mark was a fellow worker and that he was a comfort to him. So that gives us another idea of what kind of man that Barnabas was. He was somebody who could take a guy like John Mark and get him straightened out, teach him what he should do and teach him to be faithful. And the end result is a young man who learned to serve the Lord in a vital capacity, a very valuable capacity. So Barnabas is well-suited as a traveling companion to go to Jerusalem with Paul and to confront this issue with the Judaizers uh, about the churches in Galatia. Now, the next one's going to go quickly, so don't don't panic here and say, well, it's going to get really, really late on us. The next one's Titus. Titus is the other one, and he's what we call the helper. And I'm not going to say much about him right now because he turns out to be a very interesting carrier, uh, character in the discussion. He actually becomes a test case for, for Paul's doctrine. And it was very appropriate that Titus should go. He was, a, he, was a, he was not a Jew, he's a Greek, and an uncircumcised one. So I suppose the best thing that we can say about Titus at this point is the willingness to be Paul's helper. If he could help in the defense of Paul's apostleship in Jerusalem and he could be a testimony to the, to the grace of God in saving people without circumcision, then Titus was willing to wade into that hotbed of controversy and the unwelcomeness that he would feel being a Greek, a Gentile, walking into the city of Jerusalem among all these Jews that are fighting over the issue of circumcision. He's willing to do that. And so he became a tremendous help to Paul. Later in the ministry, uh, Paul was, 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 so, uh, was so, I guess the word we would use, high on Titus, that he was using for all different kinds of things. And, and when Paul went to Troas, he, he was expecting to meet Titus there because Titus was going to meet him with a report of what was going on in the Corinthian church. But when Paul got to Troas, Titus wasn't there. I'm not going to say that Paul panicked, but he came very concerned about what had happened to him. And so Paul took off into Macedonia looking for Titus. He was that kind of a helper. I mean, Paul just kind of left no stone unturned trying to find out where he was. And then in the letter that Paul wrote to Titus, there it talks about how he commissioned him to, to teach new converts and how he said to him, you need to ordain elders in the churches. And you know where Titus was serving? He was serving in Crete. Whoa, that's a place with a terrible reputation. You ever heard somebody call somebody a Cretan? Okay, well, that's because that's people from there. they're not you know they were, they were rough people at that time. I don't know how it is now. Never been to Crete, but at that time, they had no reputation. But Titus was the one who served there. He was a faithful helper. And the reason that this is so important because while all this is going on, Paul was in prison. He needs somebody to be the eyes and the ears of the ministry. He's got to have somebody to help. He can't go to these places and and teach the people. So he had faithful people like Titus to do that. He had to have good men, and that's what Titus was. And so he becomes later a very important visual demonstration of a real, live, breathing, uncircumcised Gentile convert. I know it sounds strange, but that's what he was. So we're going to stop with that for this evening. And um, I, I don't have, as you see, we don't have time to develop the next point. And so uh, I just think it's really good for us to try to tie up all these loose ends and see what's going on here in the Scriptures. How do these things all come about? How does it all fit together? And that's the purpose of doing all of this. And we thank the Lord for this, that, that Christianity in the first century was not a scandalous hierarchy of, and a monstrosity that churches have become today, but we have just really simple, straightforward gospel preachers players that are devoted to the truth of god's word and we don't see the personal politics of power going on among these devoted disciples of jesus christ let's pray father we thank you for the time in your word tonight and lord we we appreciate the opportunity of looking into the bible and just passages of scripture that that seem strange to us and hard to understand They, they do have an explanation And we're thankful, Lord, that you you help us to understand what's written in your word. And so we learn to trust everything that you say as being absolute truth. And we see the great testimony of of people that are in the scriptures that teach us how to live our lives, how to be encouragers, how to have the humility that we really need in your service, how to be generous to people. These kinds of things are taught in scriptures like this. And it's it's good for us to, to seek these things out and to learn them. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.